0: Our sermon text uh, this morning is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We are uh, about halfway through uh, Mark chapter 6. Our verses there are verse 14 through verse 30. So I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word today. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me what for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's let's pray and once again ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for your word that you give us to teach us what we are to believe about you and how you would have us to live the duty that you require of us. Give us grace to understand your word rightly this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well... um, as I was getting ready to preach on this text this week, uh, I couldn't help but think it was kind of ironic uh, to be looking at a text such as this uh, when we're coming up on on our national elections not too long from now. You know, it's a preacher dealing with with a uh, with a so-called king, you know, preaching politics, so to speak, preaching right to the king, preaching right to Herod, and what the results uh, were for for John. You know, we have. In our day, I won't belabor the point, but we have, um, I'll be an equal opportunity offender this morning. We have religious leaders on the left and on the right, not just one or the other, that I think uh, seem to be in a rush, falling all over themselves to endorse candidates on either side. Um, who, frankly, the candidates on either side of this election seem like they'd fit right into Harrod's party. They don't seem like they'd be somebody that uh, anybody should be too enthusiastic about. And when Dan was reading that selection, that passage from Isaiah 28, I hadn't thought of it when I was preparing for the sermon, but as he was reading it and I was following along, I thought, boy, this sure has a lot of familiar themes. You know, wine and strong drink over and over again, you know, talked about in that, in that text in Isaiah 28. And treating the word of God like what? Precept upon precept, line upon line, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, now Herod might have treated it a little bit better than that, at least he took it more seriously than that. He was smart enough to be offended by it, even though he didn't repent and believe it. He threw John, yeah, John the Baptist in, in prison over it. Well, in the, the previous verses we looked at last Sunday, verses 7 to 13, uh, what did we see there? We saw Jesus sending out, for the first time, sending out the twelve. The two by two, it says in verse 7. And he gave them authority, verse 7 says, over the unclean spirits. And it says later on in that passage that they cast out many demons. Verse 13 says that. So they also healed those who were sick. And they preached. What was the message that they, that they preached? Verse 12 says they preached a message of repentance. They preached that men should repent. That was their, uh, the note of their, of their preaching. And so what we saw last week was that basically they were doing what Jesus had shown them to do. They spent all that time following Christ, seeing what he did, hearing his message, and they were out to do the same things. Jesus commissioned them and sent them to do and say and teach what he had done and said and teach. That's, that's kind of where, where we are in, in this uh, part of Mark's gospel. And if you remember, what did we say from looking at the earlier part of Mark 6? What was the context of that sending? What was the, what was the, what was the thing that happened right before Jesus sent the, uh, what we call the apostles now, our text says, actually calls them that for the first time, the rejection of Christ in Nazareth. It's not an accident that Jesus took them to his hometown, and his hometown wanted nothing to do with him. His hometown basically ridiculed him and rejected him. And the very next thing he does is send the twelve to do the exact same things he did and said. You can't help, I can't help but think that maybe in the back of their minds... When he's sending them, they weren't thinking great thoughts. They might have been thinking, wait, look what just happened to him. And now he's sending us, you know, what might we be expected to, to be greeted with on our own? Well, they. I think he did that for a reason. I think he was teaching them and teaching us that we're not always going to you know, have a hero's welcome. People aren't always going to roll the red carpet out for the word of God and for the gospel of Christ. No matter how good that news is, there are many people as Paul would say later, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And they still exist today. Well, what's, what's the next thing we see in our text? We see Jesus rejected in verses 1 through 6. You see Jesus sending the disciples, the 12, two by two, in verses 7 to 13. Well, here we see something that you might think is oddly placed. Maybe if you're reading Mark 6, you might think to yourself, Boy, that seems out of play. It seems like an odd place for that to be situated, but I think we're going to see it's there for a reason, uh, not just because that's when it happened, uh, but, but that it fits quite well with the context uh, in Mark chapter 6. We see the violent death, the, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. A very disturbing text in many ways. Mark, What's Mark doing? He's basically bookending the sending of the Twelve with the rejection of Christ on the one hand, and the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, on the other. I don't think that's without without reason. It's as if John's trying, or Mark rather, is trying to tell us something. In Jesus in John chapter 15 verse 20 says, "A servant, a servant is not greater than his master." And he connects the dots. He doesn't leave it open-ended. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Not everybody. Not all the time. But we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. You might recall that if you've been with us for the whole time studying through Mark's gospel so far, way back in the first chapter of Mark, uh, John the Baptist baptized Christ. But what does it say in Mark 1, 14 to 15? It says this. Now, after John was arrested, it's John the Baptist. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, same area where here it is, Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what's the context of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry? His baptism, certainly. But what else? What does Mark point out? He says, now, after John was arrested. You know, Mark, it's been said by a few commentators, and I think they're probably right, uh, not that the context totally matters in some ways, but people, a lot of commentators believe that Mark, the gospel according to Mark, was written that for a particular audience. Not that it doesn't apply to all of us, because it does. But the particular audience that they believe that Mark had in mind was, was Rome, was, was believers at Rome. You know, they, people say that Mark is Peter's gospel. That Mark, the gospel of Mark is he got all his information from Peter. So it's basically you could almost call this the Gospel according to Peter. It's kind of what what it is, and I think that's right. But you know, if you were a Christian in Rome in the first century, what might you be faced with that you might not uh, be prepared for? That none of us are ever prepared for, but persecution, suffering for the for the name of Christ. And so Mark's Gospel, all through it, seems to pepper it here and there and everywhere with these little little tidbits uh, of, of persecution and things. So he mentions John. He mentions John's arrest, way back in chapter 1. Well, now he kind of pans back to something else that happened uh, to, to John. John's imprisonment and then John's, John's martyrdom. Now, Herod's murder of John the Baptist did not happen after Jesus sent the 12. I know that's easy to read the text and, and, and not be careful with it and think that's what's happening. That Jesus is rejected, he sends the 12, then John the Baptist is beheaded. That's not what the text says. We don't know when John was beheaded. We don't know how long after his arrest that that happened. We know it didn't happen here. What you're seeing now is, to use television terms, is a flashback. You ever watch a show and the people making the show, they try to catch you up or remind you of something you might have forgotten about, so something they're about to show you makes sense? That's this. That's That's what Mark is doing here. He's giving us kind of a flashback. And the one having the flashback here is Herod. Herod's having a flashback, and mostly he's having a flashback because of a guilty conscience, isn't he? Again, we don't know how long ago, how much time had transpired between his murder, his execution of John the Baptist, and this current situation with the 12 disciples, but one thing is clear is his conscience was torturing him. His conscience still was bothering him, although not enough to lead him to repentance, was it? But his conscience still tormented him over it. Look at verses 14 to 16. It says, King Herod heard of it. Heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said what? John, whom I beheaded... He doesn't just say John. John whom I beheaded has been raised. When he thought of John, he thought of his own sin and wickedness and having John beheaded. What was it that John heard of that brought this back to the forefront of his mind? What caused this flashback for Herod? He heard of the ministry of Christ and the twelve. That's what he heard of. He heard of... Basically, what Jesus sent the, the disciples out to do, and their, their reports, it's not an accident that their reports of their ministry come back at verse 30. They come and tell Jesus all that they had done and said, Herod heard of it, here's are the miracles being done, and who does, what does his tortured conscience tell him it is? Not just some prophet, John. The one he beheaded has come back, has come back to life. So it seems like John John's kind of haunting him from beyond the grave. It's it's so much on his mind that he reads everything through it. He reads the miracles or hears of the miracles of Christ and he interprets it as John come back from the dead. You almost wonder if he was expecting a knock at the door of the palace, that John was going to show up and get him, Uh, how terrified he might have have been. So word, word was getting around. There were a lot of different views on what these miracles meant. Some, including Herod himself, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. I mean, Herod, give him some credit in some ways, Herod, in an odd way, affirmed the resurrection. He wasn't a Sadducee. He believed that, that people could be raised from the dead, and he thought John had been raised that, that way. Other people thought it was Elijah, and that's not without reason that people thought that John, or uh, really in this case, Jesus was Elijah. Or it says, or a prophet like one of those prophets of old. Elijah was kind of a, a you know, maybe in the, the top, the top echelon of the Old Testament prophets in a lot of ways. Uh, maybe he wasn't that one. Maybe he was one of the other ones, or one like one of the other ones. Either way, they 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 pictured Jesus and the apostles, especially Jesus, as some kind of prophet, possibly even Elijah or John the Baptist. And you know that idea persisted through Jesus' earthly ministry. It wasn't just Herod. It wasn't just a here and there, somebody thinking that. If you look ahead to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, it says this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Even the disciples were hearing this stuff. And he says, they they told him, John the Baptist wasn't just Herod. John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. Same three categories. This was a common occurrence going going on. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You know, to identify John the Baptist or Jesus as Elijah was a pretty big deal. It wasn't just some random... You know, selection. Elijah was foretold in the Old Testament to come back at a particular time. He was foretold to come back uh, before the coming of the Messiah. And so, to say that Elijah had come and really had come back, right, was was quite a a big deal for someone to think. And they weren't all the way wrong, were they? We know from other texts that John the Baptist. Uh, was the one that fulfilled that prophecy, that his, even his, his clothing and his, and his diet were reminiscent of Elijah. What did Elijah wear? The Old Testament says he wore a camel's hair coat and a leather belt. That was not normal attire. And when I was a kid, I would read those passages and I would think, why did they even point it out? Didn't everybody dress like that? No, no, they didn't. It, it was odd back then. In Elijah's day, that was odd to wear. That wasn't normal. You know, most people didn't dress like cavemen. Uh, that's what Elijah kind of looked like, probably. The way And he ate, what, locusts and wild honey? Didn't, didn't want to be a prophet when I read that, when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, you know, well, what did John the Baptist come wearing? John the Baptist was a modern man in their day. Camel's hair, coat, and leather belt. He looked weird. John the Baptist would have been a very strange-looking man to them in their day, not just ours. It wasn't the normal thing, and people that, that had some insight would have connected those dots and said, well, wait a minute, he's dressed like Elijah. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't an accident. So this, this, this kind of fever pitch of eschatological uh, speculation and excitement wasn't for, no, wasn't for no reason. But Herod's interpretation of those reports he was hearing about this Jesus person and his ministry were skewed by his own guilty conscience. Now, we see, I think, something here of, of what's to come shortly before the crucifixion. I think, I think Mark is, is having us connect those dots. If you think about it, Herod's own guilty conscience over murdering John the Baptist, they played a part, that, that guilt played a part in his role in the death of Jesus Christ. Who did he think Jesus was? John the Baptist. What, what did John the Baptist do. John the Baptist rebuked him for his immorality and he had him murdered for it. He had him, of course it was under the guise of the government so it was was official right? It wasn't murder to his eyes but it was. He murdered him. So when when Jesus comes along he liked to hear him too it said later on in in the gospel according to Luke. But what did he do? Did he have him pardoned? Did he have him released? He sent him back to Pilate. He sent him back to Pilate to be crucified. So when he saw Jesus, he was reminded of John. You know, If you think about it, it's kind of amazing, although it shouldn't amaze us, to see what kind of lengths a person will go to to quiet a guilty conscience. Without going to the one thing, the one person who can actually quiet your guilty conscience. There's, there's one path, one way to a quiet conscience, and that's through faith in Christ. To have your sins forgiven. Well, Herod didn't go that way. Herod tried to to stamp out anything that spoke of his guilty conscience, and as you see in our text, nothing would do it. No matter what he saw, heard, or went, his guilty conscience went with him. Now, there are are a number of of men in the Bible, in the New Testament, that are named Herod. And, you know, the old saying about you can't tell so-and-so from so-and-so without a scorecard. Well, sometimes Herod, the word Herod in the Bible is kind of like that in some ways. Um, There are three or four, by some counts, Herods. In, in just the Gospels and Acts forget, forget the rest of it the first is Herod the Great Herod the Great wonder if he named himself that was the one that we see back in Matthew chapter 2 uh, that's the one uh, he saw the birth of the Messiah as a threat to his own power remember he tried to get the wise men the magi to tell him you know, and got people to tell him you know, where he was going to be born and when and, and all that stuff and when they tricked him and went another way what, what did he do? Oh, those tricky wise men, they got me. No, he went and it says that in Matthew 2.16, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. That's mind-boggling. What was he trying to do? He was trying to cast a wide net to see if he can get that one. That's how determined he was to stamp out any threat to his throne. It's an odd, in an odd way, it's almost like faith. Like he, he took those prophecies of, of who the Christ was going to be, the King, where he was going to be born, and he didn't believe it in a saving way, but he believed it enough to take very swift and decisive action on it. it it's it's a strange, in a strange way, he has more faith, although not the right kind, than a lot of people who claim to believe in the Scriptures. He actually acted on it, but in an awful way. You also have in the Bible, in the New Testament, Herod Agrippa, who you see in the book of Acts, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. We read of his persecution of the church in the book of Acts. You Remember in Acts chapter 12, it says he killed the brother, the, James, the brother of John, with the sword. He had him killed. And then he tried to get Peter. Remember? What was he going to do to Peter? He wasn't planning on just keeping him in jail. He was going to kill him. And the angel, the angel rescued him. We also read in that same chapter of Herod Agrippa, of his death. It says in verse 23 of Acts 12 that he was eaten by worms and died. You might know that, that um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually uh, actually backed that up. He actually his version is a little bit different, but it does talk about the death, the death of, of Herod Agrippa. Um, and he also talks about Herod Antipas. That's the one that we're looking at here in our text. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Remember, if you know who George Foreman is, he names all of his kids George. Well, Herod seemed to have the same problem. All of his kids were named Herod something. You know, he, he was so concerned about his name uh, being being uh, extended and continuing. He seemed to name. Seems like all of his sons had some version of Herod something as their name from all of his different wives. Well. Um, this, this is the same Herod that we're going to see. The one in our text is the same one that we're going to see in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus stood on trial before him before the crucifixion. Now Mark doesn't pinpoint that for us in his gospel. He doesn't show us Herod again at the cross uh, before the cross as, as Luke does. But I think one, in a way our text here is, is another foreshadowing of Herod's treatment of Christ and his role in the crucifixion and death of the Messiah. Herod was a wicked man. They all were, but this one was no exception. He was a wicked man by any objective standard. Um, And the text points something in particular out about his wickedness, besides the murder of John, obviously, was that he had married the wife of his brother Philip, also known by some as Herod Philip. So he was a half-brother of this Herod. Uh, and, And that marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias, was against the law. That's what Mark tells us John preach to him Leviticus chapter 20 verse 21 it says this if a, man, if a man takes his brother's wife it is impurity he has uncovered his brother's nakedness they shall be childless so the Old Testament law forbid it man was not to take his brother's wife well John the Baptist had this annoying habit of telling people to repent of their sins and to turn to the Messiah by faith And even worse than that, he had the boldness to tell people to repent of very specific sins. You know, as a pastor, as a preacher, if I just kind of leave it all vague and generic and say, repent of your sins, nobody really tends to get too offended. Well, John went further than that. Many of us don't even do that. But John went further. John told him a specific sin. He didn't say, hey, you're guilty of sin in some nebulous if, you know, ethereal sense that nobody could pinpoint or put their finger on. He said, "Oh, by the way, Herod, this, this is wrong. A pretty big thing that he had done. He tells him uh, was was wrong. John, John tells him, uh, our text tells us in verse 17 that it was not lawful, as we saw from Leviticus 20, not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. You might notice that in our text. I don't know if you notice this or not, but our text, at least twice, still refers to Herodias as whose wife? Philip's. I think that's telling. It doesn't say, you know, that, that your wife who used to be Philip's wife. It says, Philip's wife, your brother's wife. I think that's, that's telling. So John made the truth of God's holy law known, showed where it had been broken and called men to repent, and that included a king or someone who would take the title of a king. It didn't matter to John where somebody was on the social social ladder, so to speak. Whether it be a king or someone else, he was going to call them to repent. And it was a kindness for John to do so. John wasn't just throwing stones. John was calling him to repent. And isn't this the pattern you find if you look through your whole Bible, as you read through the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, this is the pattern I believe you find in the scriptures. Do you not see over and over again in the pages of your Bible that the messengers of God in both Old and New Testaments rebuked sin and called their hearers to repentance and faith? It's, it's the way it always is. It's the way it is not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament as well. And I, you almost have to wonder whether or not John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul for that matter would be welcomed in very many pulpits today. Would would we welcome John the Baptist? You know, granted he wouldn't have a shirt and tie, but you know, would we, forget, forgetting what he wore, would we welcome a message like that? Someone who's specific and says, "Here's where you've sinned. Here's where you need to repent and turn to the Lord." no well, wonder, in some ways. Well, what, what was Herod's response? Obviously, it wasn't a good one. Instead of repenting, Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned. Chained in prison, eventually had him beheaded, as our text tells us. He did all that despite the fact that our text tells us that he feared John. Isn't that weird? I'm the mighty king. I give the, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. I can throw you in jail. I can have your head brought to me on a platter. But he feared John. He feared John. It says he knew that he was a just or righteous and holy man, verse 20. He even held, you have to believe here, that that he in some way held John to be a prophet. In some ways, his view of John is very very high. Possibly even Elijah himself. Verse 20 says something odd. It says he heard him gladly. It says he heard him and was perplexed. He he wasn't sure what John was saying about some things except for that one thing. But it says, oddly enough, that he heard him gladly. Think about this Um, John the Baptist. Preaches God's word boldly, faithfully, despite whatever persecution came his way. He's thrown in jail by Herod. And yet, what does he apparently keep doing? Herod, we don't know if Herod brought him to him or what the deal was. He still had an audience with Herod. And apparently he had an audience with Herod on, on something of a regular basis. You almost wonder, why would you do that? As bad as Herod's conscience was over this issue, and over the issue of killing him afterward. He still heard him gladly. He, somehow or another, he enjoyed listening to John. He found something about his message interesting. But for the sake of his own sexual immorality and his reputation among his important party guests, as we're going to see, he had John executed instead of breaking a foolish vow that he made at this party. So let us never mistake from our text... Looking at Herod, it's hard to put yourself in Herod's shoes. Nobody wants to do that. But let us never mistake a high, even if a conflicted view, of a godly preacher with saving faith. You can hear a good preacher gladly and not have saving faith. We shouldn't mistake hearing, even glad hearing, the preaching of the word of God for saving faith. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10.17 says... But you can hear without actually believing, can't you? You can hear gladly, as Herod did, without actually believing. You can't have faith without the la- you know without the former. You you can't have faith without the hearing, but you can have the hearing without faith. Be mistaken about that. Well, the next thing we see in our text is this uh, this bloody birthday party that Herod Herod throws in verses 21 uh, to 29. It says. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. What could possibly go wrong in a birthday party, right? He gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. Must have been a good dance. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her, to her mother. So we've looked at Herod's sin. Now let's look at the daughter of Herodias and of her mother. Notice in that text I just read, that, that passage there, the different words that are used uh, to indicate the hurry that Herodias' daughter was in to make this request known. It says she came in immediately with haste. It's Hard to even imagine this picture. Immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once now, not next week, not next month, not don't give me a promissory note, an IOU. I want to see it right in front of me. Before this party is over, I want to see John the Baptist's head given to me on a plate, on a platter. She came in immediately with haste. She wasted no time. She didn't hesitate or stop to ask questions about her mother's advice. About the bloody and violent nature of her mom's request. That con- her conscience didn't seem to bother her at all. There's no pause. There's no, wait, what? I, I don't know if I heard you, mom. What do you want me to do? You get the feeling this discussion had taken place a few times before. Remember it said, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. This wasn't something that just sprung on her. She's wanted him dead ever since, but she didn't have an opportunity. What does it say that Herod did? It's, an, it's really an odd phrase, but it says Herod protected John. He had him in jail. He had him in prison in chains in a jail, but in a weird way he protected him. Herodias would have had him dead before if not for Herod although we don't want to give Herod too much too much credit for his protecting of the man that shouldn't have been in jail in the, in the first place. But Herodias' daughter had no reservations about having John killed. She couldn't get back to the king fast enough with her mother's request. And what does she do? She leaves the king again with no wiggle room. Now, this is a party. This is probably the kind of party you, you should be embarrassed to be at if you're a believer Obviously, but this is a party who knows how much alcohol was flowing at this party. And she doesn't want to give Herod time to think. She doesn't want to give Herod the time to possibly sober up and reconsider or think of a a way out of it. So she says that she wants John's head on the platter at once. Now think about this. Think about the sad testimony this is to the effects of a wicked example in the life of a child. You know, Herod, uh, our Herod here in this passage... Herod Antipas. What do they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, it, the apple didn't fall far from the tree when it came to Herod. But it's also true of Herodias' daughter. The apple didn't fall far from the tree from which it fell. You get the feeling that you think about what she did. You know, I won't. I won't press the point uh, for, the, for anyone's sake. But you think about what actually was going on at this party, and what she was doing that got the king's attention and all the men with. Him. With him, this this was no family friendly affair. The wickedness and vileness of what was going on uh, didn't begin with the request. It was going on all through this this party. And Herod's really no better. We don't let him off the hook. Mark doesn't let him off the hook. What does it say in verses 26 to 28? The king was exceedingly sorry. Felt bad at least, right? Going to kill somebody, but hey, felt bad. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. He's exceedingly sorry. That could be taken more ways than one, I would think. He's certainly a sorry king. He felt bad, but he didn't hesitate any more than the girl did. He didn't stop and think and say, okay, how can I get out of this? There's got to be a way out of this because he was worried about looking bad. He was worried about how he would look in front of his His guests. Mark gives us two reasons. And Earlier in the service, someone mentioned pride and that's really the main reason. But he gives two reasons. One, his oaths. And two, his his guests. Well, how about the oaths? It's in the plural. Why is it in the plural? Because he repeated it twice. He said, I'll give you whatever you want, and then he ups the ante. He made an oath. I, I, I swear, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half my kingdom. You know, if he hadn't said the second part, you get the feeling maybe he could have said, well, you know, I didn't mean that. I meant, you know, something material besides someone's, someone's head. But he said it twice, and he upped the ante. Now think about this. Think about Herod's concern over his word. Think about Herod's concern over his vow or his oath. This is a man who so casually and publicly annulled or violated his wedding vows and the wedding vows of his brother Philip to Herodias. But all of a sudden now he refuses. Oh, I'm not the kind of guy that breaks my word. If I tell you something, you know why I mean it. If I make an oath in front of a group at a party when I'm half drunk, uh, I'm not breaking that one. This, this wife he had stolen from his brother, right there in the wings. Her daughter being the one, front and center, who caused the oath to come in the first place. Well, now, he doesn't want to violate his oath. He's a man of his word, isn't he? Even if that not breaking of his oath involved murder. He wants his friends to know that he can be trusted. When he says something, he means it, other than his, his personal life and his marriage. You think about it. You almost picture it. Again, this is reading into the text. You almost picture Herod sitting there, kind of um, thinking of himself as, "Look how honorable I am. Look how honest. You know, I, I keep my word even when it hurts someone else. You know, kind of a kind of a thing. You know, I jokingly like to say that I have a four-word marriage counseling uh, program: Happy wife, happy life." Maybe he's sitting there thinking, happy second, third, fourth wife, happy life. I don't, I don't know what he was doing, but he was saying, I'm going to keep her happy. I'm going to keep my, my word. Now, think about this. How simple would it have been for Herod to just look at the girl and say to her, you know, when I promised half my kingdom, I didn't promise I'd commit a crime. I mean, is that, should, shouldn't that have been the answer? I, when, you, when I tell you I'll give you whatever you want, I'm not going to murder someone. I'm not going to do something that's wicked. I'm not going to do something that's against the law. Who, who's sitting there in front of him could have possibly faulted him for that, if that's what he said? But that's not what he said. And so one has to wonder how regretful he actually was about what he did. His heart certainly didn't get any softer after that, because he mocked Christ later on before the crucifixion. How about his guests? That's his second excuse, right? His guests. Back in verse 21, if you remember, Mark kind of described the guest list as, quote, his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. That's a who's who. That probably doesn't get to be a bigger, bigger guest list than that. It's a who's who of the region of Galilee. Who were the nobles? They were the ruling officials of the land. They were important political movers and shakers. There were also military commanders there. That's the top brass, so to speak. And last but not least, the leading men of Galilee. It, it, the word there has the idea of, of the top, the first, the first citizens or the top citizens of the land. They're probably the wealthy landowners. Who knows what else they had. So he had the top military people there, the top political people there, and the top, basically, money people there. Everybody who was somebody was at this, at this party. These were people of money, people of influence and power. These these were the people that Herod had invited in order to make a show of his birthday and to make himself look and feel important. They were every bit the trophy as his wife and this girl was to him, in one sense. These were the people he wanted to, so desperately to impress with his banquet. And again, think about the kind of of party this was. This was no family-friendly environment. I'm glad that Mark doesn't go too much more into detail. These were the people he was afraid of looking bad in front of, or going back on his foolish and boastful oath in front of. So we, we don't know who they were. Mark graciously doesn't tell us any more details about them, but we... We really don't have any reason to believe, based on the context, that these were men of character or godliness or substance. You don't get the picture from reading this text that anybody stood up and tried to stop the whole thing. I kind of wonder if Herod invited people that were much like him. They probably indulged themselves exactly like Herod did at this birthday party. They no doubt lusted over Herodias' young daughter, just as Herod surely had. And again, they don't appear to have even the slightest objection to the idea of having a man beheaded for sport and for bitter vengefulness. That's, that's, that's a picture of what the, this, this government, the leading citizens, and even the military people there at the time were like. You get the picture John uh, and Mark here, rather, the writer of this gospel, is painting this picture for the people there of Rome and for us as well. It's, it's ironic, I think, that Mark at least five times In our text, five times refers to Herod as what? King. King Herod or the king. He calls him that multiple, multiple times in our passage. He seems to be, you know, you could be forgiven for saying to yourself, this is some king. He seems like he's afraid of everyone in the text. In some way, as powerful as he looks, having the power of life and death over John, he's afraid of John himself. He's afraid of his prisoner," Mark points that out explicitly. He's afraid of his own wife. He knows where that request came from, doesn't he? He's not surprised at that request. He's afraid of his wife's daughter. and he's afraid of his own guests, those guests that he invited to probably make himself look good and look important. He was afraid of this is a man with strings. This is a king with strings. It's a very sad, pathetic picture of someone who would call himself a king. You know, It's easy to look at our own current political situation. I won't belabor that. And to despair over the vileness and wickedness of the people that are represented on our ballots these days, on both sides of the aisle. You now, there's hardly a good option, I think, to be found. This is the first election I can remember where I don't know what to do. Maybe you're in the same... And I'm not going to preach and tell you what to do. Don't worry about, about that. Um, but we seem to be faced with choosing between people on both sides of the aisle who would have fit right in a Herod's party. Make no mistake about that. That's, I think, what we are looking at in some way, shape, or form. And I think it would be nice if we had a few more men like John the Baptist in our day, who wasn't afraid to rebuke someone and warn them to turn from their wicked ways and live. You know, when John preached a message of repentance, he wasn't throwing rocks. He wasn't just castigating. He wasn't just telling someone how bad they were to make himself feel better. That's what, that's what I do. That's what we do. Our rebukes aren't truth spoken in love. Our rebukes are, I'm better than you. You should be more like me. That's not rebuking. That's not biblical rebuking. That wasn't John's message, was it? John's message was the message of Ezekiel. Turn from your wicked ways and live. That was John's point. It's not without reason that Matthew 11, verse 11, says about John. It says, Among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was a prophet. He was a holy man of God. In some sense, you could say he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But he spoke the truth in love boldly to anyone, regardless of their standing or their place in society, and regardless at the cost to himself. The fact that he continued to preach to Herod while he was in prison speaks volumes of the grace that that God worked in the life of John the Baptist. May God be pleased to raise up more such men in our pulpits in our day. And it brings to mind again this text, this murder of John the Baptist brings to mind the murder of Christ at the hands of a government ruler. Herod included. This Herod included. And I'll close with reading part of Psalm Psalm 2. You know that the New Testament attributes Herod in particular as a fulfillment, him and Pilate, of part of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Here it is. The kings of the earth, including Herod, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed, anointed is Messiah, right? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast their cords away from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, saying, as for me, I have set my king. Remember the king set themselves? He says, I have set my king. On Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, are all those who take refuge in him. You know, when you think of John the Baptist's message to Herod, it doesn't say it right, come right out and say it, but when he tells him it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, what's he really reminding him of besides just that simple fact? He's saying, you may be a king, but there's a greater king. God is the king. The Lord Jesus Christ truly is the king. And you answer to him. Kings don't like to hear None of us like to hear that kind of a thing. But that's what's implied. And Psalm 2, I believe, as the New Testament tells us, is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ at the hands of, of Herod and Pilate and others. But what does it say there? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. They might try to keep their power in their place, but who is going to rule over all things? Who's ruling right now? Who's enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, ruling all things for his glory and for the sake of his church? Jesus Christ reigns right now. And John the Baptist, his death points forward to the death of Jesus Christ for sinners, even kings, even rulers. Psalm 2, as hard as part of that is to hear about the Lord laughing, what does it say? It has a message for kings and rulers. Kiss the Son. Be reconciled to Christ. Even kings. That's what John the Baptist preached. May we do the same. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of, of men like John the Baptist, who in many ways by your grace and the work of your spirit was exceptional. That he was the forerunner, the, the, uh, the ambassador, the one heralding the way for your Son, And among men born of women, no greater has arisen than him. And yet you also tell us in that same passage that uh, anyone who believes in Christ in a sense is in in one sense greater than even him. That you have given us much greater privilege. And we ask that you would give us grace to know how to, uh, in a godly way, speak and preach your word, to share your gospel. Even the message of repentance, but in a way that's pleasing in your sight that men might turn from their ways and live through faith in Christ. Give us a holy boldness and love for you and for the lost around us to do just that. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful to you no matter what the consequences are of speaking your word in love. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.